from a galaxy far, far away to a podcatcher, probably in the palm of your hands, pocket, on your computer, you name it. It is another episode of Holonet HQ, episode four, recorded on September 13th, 2017. This is Jim Mason. You can find me on Twitter at Jimmers with three M's. And there has been some news in the Star Wars, and you know how it is. Sometimes I get a wild hair up my you-know-where, and I need to talk about whatever's going on in the news, and that is what I am doing with this episode here today, and that is about the change of directors for episode nine. Now, there was some news that came out of Lucasfilm last week that Colin Trevorrow, who has been slated to be director of episode nine since... Gosh, what was it, 2014, 2015, early 2015? He was slated to be the Episode Nine director. Um, he was a guy who got his start with a nice little indie movie called Safety Not Guaranteed. And if you haven't seen that movie, I definitely recommend you'll, you'll see, you should see it, especially if you're a fan of low-budget indie genre-related work. I think it's a fantastic little film. Then he went on to do this other fantastic little film, called Jurassic Park, excuse me, Jurassic World, which grossed, oh, what was it, $1.6 billion worldwide. So Kathleen Kennedy felt pretty confident that she found a guy who was going to deliver on time and to budget and make her company and their parent company, Disney, the House of the Mouse, plenty of those dollars. Well, Things have not been going as according to plan recently, uh, going as far back as I want to say mid to late June, when an independent drama that he had put out called The Book of Henry um, did not do well at the box office, nor did it do well with the critics. And a lot of people were talking, and by people I mean people on uh, the various in the various trades like The Hollywood Reporter, Variety, IndieWire, um, you know, making starwars.net. So a whole range of both niche websites going all the way up to industry trades were saying that there might have been a little friction inside of, of Lucasfilm because of the uh, lack of critical reception slash box office potential of Book of Henry. And it went a little bit deeper to that. Uh, last month, the beginning of August, they hired a screenwriter by the name of Jack Thorne who uh, penned the script to the not wildly loved Harry Potter Broadway shenanigans. And I'll be quite honest, I, I am not a big Harry Potter fan, so I, 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 have no <laughs> I have no idea what was the adult Harry Potter book that they finally put out that, J, that J.K. Rowling wrote. Anyway, he wrote the stage adaptation of that, and he's done a lot of British television and whatnot. I'm sure he's a talented individual, but they brought Jack Thorne in to rework the script that Trevorrow was working on. And the rumors and the unnamed sources and the trades kept coming up with these stories that there was now growing friction between Lucas come uh, Kathleen Kennedy and Mr. Trevorrow, which all came to a head last week on September 5th. And this was the very short 
And I don't think you could call it sweet statement that was put out. And this is on StarWars.com, so you can look it up and read it for yourself. But I did the uh, groundwork here, so I'm going to go ahead and read it for you. And that quote is from the press release. Lucasfilm and Colin Trevorrow have mutually chosen to part ways on Star Wars Episode Nine. Colin has been a wonderful collaborator throughout the development process, but we have all come to the conclusion that our visions for the project differ. We wish Colin the best, and we'll be sharing more information about the film soon. So, bye. (laughs) That so bye part was not in the press release. So, over the last week, there has been a sturm and drung there's been a lot of, of hand-wringing and internet speculation, a lot of, of, a lot of places, whether it's on the Holonet HQ fan group that we have uh, set up on Facebook or uh, the various outlets uh, and Twitter handles and whatnot. I'm, I'm just I'm recording this a little bit later at night right now. So, but a lot of people on the interwebs, wherever it may be, on whatever social media platform they choose, uh, were wringing their hands going, who's going to be the director? Is it going to be Ron Howard moving on from saving the Han Solo fiasco, you know, saving it from Chris Lord and, uh, or excuse me, Phil Lord and Chris Miller? Or is it going to be Steven Spielberg? Is he finally going to get a shot at directing a Star Wars movie? Or, and this is where the speculation really started to go off, Will Ryan Johnson reprise his his role as director from episode eight to episode nine? And there was, a, I would like to say, a real uptick in support across all social medias that there was a possibility that Ryan Johnson was going to be the director for the next film. And it would be the first time that a director would repeat back-to-back making Star Wars movies outside of George Lucas himself when he was doing the <clears throat> prequels. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of speculation on that. And then we got the press release yesterday, September 12th, which read something to this effect. Actually, no, exactly to this effect. And that is J.J. Abrams, who launched a new era of Star Wars with The Force Awakens in 2015, is returning to complete the sequel trilogy as writer and director of Star Wars Episode Nine. Abrams will co-write this film with Chris Terrio. Uh, I'm going to take a break there for a second. In case you didn't know, Chris Terrio, good, was the Oscar award-winning screenwriter for Ben Affleck's wonderful film, Argo. Bad, he was the guy who co who co-wrote it or took a second draft at the Batman versus Superman fiasco that was just horrific to watch in the theaters. Anyway, Chris Terrio is going to be writing this with JJ. Uh, Star Wars Episode 9 will be produced by Kathleen Kennedy, Michelle Rejwan, uh, Abrams, Bad Robot, and Lucasfilm. With The Force Awakens, JJ, this is a quote from Kathleen Kennedy. With The Force Awakens, J.J. delivered everything we could have possibly hoped for, and I am so excited that he is coming back to close out this trilogy. So Kathleen Kennedy has brought back J.J. Abrams, who 
has a mixed track record of helming film projects, and some would say TV projects also, but I think that's a different conversation for a different podcast. Uh, One quick bit of news that also dropped in this press release is that they have rescheduled the four, uh, I almost said the Force Awakens. Uh, they rescheduled episode nine from its May release date in 2019, pushing it back to December because I think they really like that December date, especially given the pressure they're under right now to deliver the untitled, still untitled Han Solo movie in May of 2018. So December 20th, 2019 is when we're going to get episode nine written and co-written and directed by JJ Abrams. And how do you feel about that? I want to hear from you on Holland HQ. Definitely respond in the comments to the posting of this audio file. I uh, would love to hear what you say about that. You can also hit up at graphic podcast on Twitter, uh, you can also send us an email, longer form email, to content at gmail.com to let us know what you think. That's my way of saying I definitely want to get your part of the conversation in on this. Let me tell you what my part of the conversation in, uh, is on this. And I just want to go over really quick some of the ups and downs that I see of both directors. What were the ups of Colin Trevorrow? I think he's an imaginative imaginative filmmaker who delivers visual spectacles and can actually give us human drama. Again, I speak to Safety Not Guaranteed, a time travel movie that everybody should see. It is great science fiction. Uh, it's, kind of, it's got some dark comedic parts to it. Um, I really enjoyed that film quite a bit. Um, I can't say that I absolutely love Jurassic World. I did see it, but I didn't see it in the movie theater. Uh, my wife was a huge fan of that film, and I think rightfully so. I think it was a great ride. I mean, literally, it would have been fantastic if it was in those theaters at Disney World with the motion seating and the stuff like that, because it was directed like it was an amusement park ride from time to time. I mean, at one point in the film, it was literally an amusement park ride. I I didn't get a lot out of that, and I'm not going to go down the road of cracking on this film because it's Bryce Dallas Howard running through the forest, the rainforest with heels on. I mean, forget that part. You know, it's not that kind of movie, kid, as as Harrison Ford once said to Mark Hamill. So I, I, I just did not feel like there was any depth despite some of the talent to that film. Um, you know, we had Chris Pratt, who just came off of Guardians of the Galaxy, so he's a big movie star now. Bryce Dallas Howard has always been a capable uh, actor who has uh, turned in, I think, some really decent performances and some not-so-great def- performances, but she has definitely had herself a great professional career, career for the most part. Um, I think that visually the film was a stunning achievement, I think that it definitely delivered on high-octane action and excitement and yada, 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 but there was absolutely zero depth. I mean, when you have character actors like Vincent D'Onofrio that is doing everything they can, and you can watch the look on his face as he's trying to chew scenery, but there was not enough because I think it was mostly on green screen. I just feel like you're the, the, the whatever finished product you have at that point 
you really missed out on getting some great work out of him or getting some great improv out of Chris Pratt, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I cannot ignore the fact that Jurassic World is the fourth all-time moneymaker and the number two moneymaker for films released in 2015. The number one moneymaker in 2015 was Episode 7, The Force Awakens. So let's segue into what I think are some of the ups and downs qualifications for J.J. Abrams. Um, let's start with the good stuff, and this is only my own These are all my own opinions, by the way. Nobody else is here in the room with me. I'm not being influenced by anything else I've said. I know that I've put myself out there as being a giant fan of Star Wars. Hell, there's even stuff in the prequels that I like. That doesn't mean that I'm necessarily a fan of the prequels, but there are little bits. I mean, I think everybody likes Duel of the Fates. If we could all just, you know, cut out the Anakin stuff, you know, him flying the Naboo and one Starfighter at the end of that film, I think we all would have been happier. And as uh, 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 frequent uh, graphic content guest John Wright would say, uh, there's always Star Wars The Phantom Edit, and it does make it an incredibly more watchable movie. That being said, let's talk about J.J. Abrams. He's got ups, downs, and middles through his career. Um, you know, downs, Star Trek Into Darkness. How many times do you say, it's not con, it's not con, it's not con? And then the film comes out, and Benedict Cumberbatch says something along the lines of, I am con. You know, whatever. <laughs> so, to keep the the poorly kept secret when everybody and their mother kind of got the sense that that film was going to be a rehash of what I would say is one of the all-time genre, if not one of the all-time cinematic classics, genre or not genre of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, I, I felt like he was on dangerous ground from the beginning for redoing that entire movie. I, I just felt it was, it was a complete flop creatively, even though, again, the movie made money. Then you go to some of his meh projects, whether it was his shepherding of Cloverfield or his directing of Super 8. Um, I, I saw a friend on Facebook put something along the lines of Super 8 was much better when it was Stranger Things, and I couldn't agree with him more on that. Um, Super 8 was a fine film for the first half of it, and the second half of it was kind of what the fuck. But again... You know, I see the creativity that was going on, and it was definitely his love letter to Steven Spielberg. I think that was his first big love letter to Spielberg. And then let me point out a couple of things where I thought J.J. just outright succeeded. And um, one of those films was the first Star Trek movie, very divisive film for people in the nerd space. There was a lot of old-time Star Trek fans that did not care for Chris Pine's version of James T. Kirk. Now, that's not to say that those people think that, that Chris Pine is a bad actor. If anything, I think it, it really showed off his bona fides of being a leading man and really showing that he has true screen presence. I feel like that film succeeded because it took chances. I think that film succeeded because it wanted to, to open up the box that Gene Roddenberry created and see what were its component parts. Um, I remember 
my brother taking apart a transistor radio back in the 70s. Yes, that's how old we are. And he took it apart because he wanted to understand how it worked. And I think he put it together again, but I'm going to have to confirm that story with him, to be quite honest. But J.J. was is like that. He wanted to, to help explore what made Kirk Kirk, Spock Spock, Uhura, giving Uhura some real character depth, I thought was a fantastic piece of this. Then you had smile-worthy performances from John Cho as Sulu and, and the late and, and, and great for too short of a time, Anton Yelchin as Chekhov. I, I just thought that they had a great little cast there. Oh, and please, let me not forget Judge Dredd himself, Carl Urban. His version of Bones McCoy was uncanny. It was kind of like Brandon Routh channeling Christopher Reeve in Superman Returns. He was channeling the late DeForest Kelly as Bones McCoy in that. So I, I found the film a wonderful summer blockbuster. It, it just tickled me. I thought it was a great version of it. Um, a lot of hardcore Star Trek fans claim that he Star Wars did up. I can't necessarily disagree with that because of the kind of ship-to-ship combat that they showed, but I still feel like in its guts, in its DNA, it was a Star Trek film, and I think J.J. understood that, but he had a, a fine line to walk between total reboot or shunting it over to its own timeline so that him and future filmmakers like Justin Lin would have uh, uh, fertile ground to play in. Um, I also think that J.J. Abrams did a great job on a film that a lot of people forget he directed, and that was Mission Impossible 3. Um, I loved the first Mission Impossible by, by Brian De Palma, had some great performances in it, especially with the turn, spoiler alert, the movie's only like, what, 20 years old or something. Uh, John Voight as Mr. Phelps turned out to be the undercover bad guy at the end of the film. Um, uh, That was a a great turn. But John Woo's Mission Impossible 2 was dead on arrival. I mean, as much as I love John Woo and some of the great Hong Kong films that he did, like The Killer, Hard Boiled, A Bullet in the Head, you know, (laughs) and I've got friends who can school me for days on all the great John Woo movies, I feel like John Woo did his absolute best to fire a torpedo into the side of of that franchise's hull. So enter J.J. a few years later. Tom Cruise gets this thing going at Paramount, and we had him, his character of Ethan Hunt, actually playing for stakes, not just, you know, this nerve gas kind of thing that needed to be to be recovered from this weapons international weapons dealer being played by the late great Seymour Hoffman but he needed to get out there and save his his loved one his fiance that he had just gotten engaged to um, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the actress who played that I think it might have been Michelle Monaghan but don't quote me on the, on that um, but he 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 picked up the Mission Impossible uh, style 
of espionage action thriller that De Palma created and really gave it a personal touch using some some handy cam work, especially in the prologue to that film uh, where it was Ethan Hunt and Carrie Russell's character who, spoiler alert, died at the beginning of the film. I thought that there were some tremendous action set pieces that were at play there. And then the final reel of the film uh, where he takes on... Uh, uh, Hoffman and and his fellow troop of scumbags, I just thought was fantastic, and not everybody had to die. Like pretty much, the Mission Impossible team had to die in the first <laughs> Mission Impossible movie. So I I really enjoyed the personal touch. I enjoyed the humanization of it. I really enjoyed Simon Pegg's character being introduced to the team. Uh, you know, along with Ving Rhames and Maggie O. And I I just thought it was a damn fun movie. So that brings me to what did I think of The Force Awakens? This is a movie that's two years old, and it only made, oh, two billion dollars internationally. It's the number one movie of all time, not counting inflation. So what did I think of The Force Awakens? I am unashamed to say that I enjoyed The Force Awakens wholeheartedly. Was it straight up homage in places. Yes. Do I think that it had to be straight up homage in places? And that is yes as well. And this is what I'm going to say to defend this. Did I like the fact that they were in essence, again, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen episode seven by now, I don't know why you're even listening to this podcast, but you know, they fought Starkiller Base, which was a planet-sized Death Star. So what makes that any substantially different from the Death Star's appearances in episode four, episode six, or the following year in 2016 with Rogue One? Fundamentally, it doesn't make it anything different. It it was a giant planet-sized space station that shot death rays. Instead of destroying one planet, it could destroy, what, four or five planets at the, at the same time? Essentially, the stakes were the same. Essentially, planets got annihilated. Essentially, you had somebody who didn't want to go on the call to adventure, you know, to, to use the Joseph Campbell there, who refused the call and then kind of had her hand forced and she did go, even though she wasn't a farm boy, she was a scavenger in another desert world. Uh, she and this this other guy that was on the run um, from what, what's essentially the Empire, okay, First Order, and they have stormtroopers, albeit nicer helmets, my opinion, uh, although their officer hats are weird with the little wingy things. I'm not so sure about that. The, the, the long and the short of it is, is that, As much as we like it or don't like it, even in the time of Lucas, every film after episode four, A New Hope, whether we liked it, like we all think, I I would say, barring a few people out there who just have different films that they came into the franchise on, I would say the vast majority of people think that episode five, The Empire Strikes Back, is probably the best of the franchise. Now, I was listening to a a podcast today for a guy who was six years old in 1999 who said that The Phantom Menace is one of his favorite movies. And while The Phantom Menace was not my cup of tea, I refuse to exist in a kind of bubble which shields me 
from what the feeling is when you first get exposed to something that that turns your narrow life from just you know seeing what's in front of you or looking down or looking up or looking side to side and expands this into this wonderful 16 by 9 aspect ratio, this widescreen awe-inducing wonder. And I can only imagine the kind of joy that that six-year-old felt. Yes, there was Jar Jar Banks and Banta Pudu and shit like that, but there was something in that film that turned this guy who for the record, is um, a, a very successful NASCAR driver, and he does a couple of podcasts himself, turned him into a lifelong fan of the franchise. So just like I, on my comic book show, Graphic Content, one of the things that I talk with my co-host Adam about is the fact is that no matter what we think of certain comics or certain media properties, it's always going to be somebody's first. And it's going to set somebody's imagination on fire. And it's going to light it up in a good way. So how does that tie into what I thought of The Force Awakens? Did I think it was the best of the franchise? Absolutely not. In fact, for many years after being a kid, uh, you know, in my, in my preteens and, and early teens, I thought Return of the Jedi was my favorite movie. As I grew older and my tastes matured and I started re-watching old films I had seen as a child, I had learned and, and really learned to appreciate just what a work of art that The Empire Strikes Back was, of all the chances that were taken with that story, all the risks. It was not easy for George to say that Darth, you know, I mean, could you imagine pitching to, to Mark Hamill back whenever they were filming this, whether it was 78 or 79? Hey, uh, just wanted to let you know that we just decided your character, yeah, his dad is Darth Vader. Wait, what? You know, he's the guy who killed Ben Kenobi? Yeah, that guy. Can you explain that to me a little bit more? Mm, we're going to have to wait till the third movie for that. You know what I mean? It, it's just... There, there were real chances being taken there, and I think, as the if you want to look at the best example of a director getting the most out of his actors and what's essentially a popcorn crunching, you know, fun fest, I think Irving Kirshner is probably the best of the directors to date. Okay, I got off track again. Here, here's what I'm I'm going to say about the Force Awakens. I saw the Force Awakens for what it was, and the Force Awakens was it was it serious homage to A New Hope? The answer unequivocally is yes. It has to be. And there's a lot of people who don't like too much homage, overt or, or otherwise. I can understand that. But I think that J.J. and the entire team at Lucasfilm, going all the way up to its general Kathleen Kennedy, had a tremendous task in front of it. And that is crafting a story that was new enough to bring all of us who live in the Star Wars bubble back into the theaters after being burned so incredibly badly by the tone-deaf storytelling and honestly poor direction of actors that the prequel trilogy had. Look, the prequel trilogy has their good parts too. The fact is, is that they were some of the most technologically advanced films in the history of cinema, 
And I will not take those achievements away from the people who earn those Oscars or earn those accolades from, from their peer group in, in the world of cinema special effects. But towards the end of that series, I was like, is it over yet? <laughs> I just couldn't take it anymore. It was, it was hard. After coming out of every, every viewing of a prequel movie, I, I had to justify it to myself that I spent, at the time, seven, eight bucks to go see this film. And I was like, yeah, it was really great in these places. And I loved it. And then the next day I was like, fuck, what did I do with my money? The Force Awakens, I never questioned what I did with my money. Because, yes, I was reintroduced to the concept of Star Wars. Yes, I was reintroduced to the call uh, uh, to adventure. Yes, there were there was a Yoda-like character who's somewhat Force-sensitive in Maz Kanata. Um, yes, there was there was uh, Daisy Ridley's character Ray. There was the hotshot, you know, Devil May Care pilot Poe. Um, yes, we we saw General Leia and Han uh, in their twilight years, you know, which was fan service. You know, I mean, Chewie, we're home. I mean, that part right there, when I saw it in the trailer the first time, I'm not afraid to tell people that I cried when I watched that. I love this movie. I love this movie not just because I thought that all the actors were earnest. I love this movie not just because I thought the, the director gave a shit about the performances of the actors to the point of insisting on practical effects as much as humanly possible to be put into the filmmaking process, working as little with green screen as possible. I feel like The Force Awakens wasn't just a movie to continue the saga for me. I looked around in the theater of The Force Awakens, and you know what I saw? I saw a lot of prequel era kids with their kids. I saw a lot of people from my generation with their older children. Or, let's be honest, we're starting to have grandkids, us, us people in their late 40s. And I saw that it continues. Life continues. And things in life tend to repeat. There are cycles in life. There are cycles of, of exploration and then withdrawal from society. There's cycles of, of progressive politics, of, of thinking about the, the whole of the greater society. And then there's times where there's the politics of fear and, you know, some would say tyranny and some would say that we're experiencing the beginnings of that again. I, I'm, I'm not sure. This is not a political podcast. But what I saw in The Force Awakens was that there were things that were extremely reminiscent of A New Hope, but there was new stuff too. We saw a stormtrooper take his helmet off. Think about that for just a second. How many stormtroopers did we see miss shots in the, the, the original trilogy films? How many stormtroopers did we see threaten entire communities or march through the halls of the Death Star? Can anyone tell you what race they were? Can anyone tell you what gender they were? No, because they were faceless minions. They were, they were worse than, than the minions for a James Bond villain. 
I mean, they were there. Any sense of identity of stormtroopers were erased until the Force Awakens. Until the Force Awakens, we never saw a credible female villain. Even though I thought JJ, and this is my criticism of JJ, underused Captain Phasma to the level of almost criminal slappy. I like I I needed to slap the shit out of JJ and go. You made one of the coolest looking Star Wars villains ever. Oh, and by the way, Emo Vader. I love Kylo Ren. Why do I love Kylo Ren? Because he wasn't fully enmeshed in the dark side yet. This was a guy who was in the process of falling. And I would argue, at least from what I saw in The Force Awakens, was it telegraphed a million miles away that that Han Solo was going to bite it? Absolutely. But what we also saw was, was the fact that Kylo Ren made his choice, and his choice was to follow the dark side. We also saw some cool new ships. We also got to revisit what it was like to see the Millennium Falcon fly in almost impossible manner. Uh, we, we saw lightsaber fights again. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that, that retreaded old ground, but I think there was just enough new. And it has me excited to see the next one. It has the pump primed. Again, was it a perfect movie? No, it was not a perfect movie. But what it was, was a film that brought a new generation of fans into the franchise and reminded us what we liked about Star Wars to begin with. Is it in my top five Star Wars films? Yes. Um, Do I like it more than Rogue One? Mm, That's something I think I've got to figure out for, for another day. What I would ask from you, dear listener, is to tell me. Either answer in the comment section of the posting for this audio file on the Holonet HQ page on facebook.com slash, or actually it's facebook.com and then search for the group Holonet HQ, or let us know on Twitter at Graphic Podcast or via email at thereal.graphicpodcast.com. And I promise. We will definitely get into the conversation more when we bring in some hosts for next roundtable. So that's my opinion. I think that having JJ come back is not a bad thing, but I think it's a thing to watch. There you go. Um, I think that it's not gonna it's not gonna be as bad as we or I should put it like this. I don't think it's gonna be as bad as some people is making it out to be. I think that he did the job that he was hired to do on Episode 7. Let's see what he can do on Episode 9 when the reins are taken off. And in the meantime, let's count down. We're on 92 days and counting to Episode 8. And I, for one, cannot wait to see that film. More images released today. Um, you know, Or the trailer, which they say might be released in October. Um, I'm looking forward to this film, and I hope you are too. And if you're not, totally understand. If you feel burned by the franchise, totally understand. Um, But I think that if you're a fan of swashbuckling, lightsaber fighting, fast ship flying, bad guy bashing kind of motion pictures, I have a sneaking suspicion that this is going to be a good one. Just my two cents. Let me know what you think. And until next time, 
May the force be with you, always.